Well, thanks again for tuning in. My name is Jeff Fuller, and uh, you can find all of this at J Fuller Interviews, J Fuller Interviews on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all over. And now the Backfire Podcast with Jeff Fuller of J Fuller Interviews on Google Podcasts and Apple iTunes. We believe people's stories matter. That's why we try to tell them and share them because you can learn a lot as you listen, unlearn what you thought was right to relearn what is right. And one with a great story is Tamara Mose. How are you? Good things. Well, thanks so much for making the time. And uh, you came via a mutual friend on Facebook, Ian Cunningham. Ian Cunningham introduced me to Kenny uh, Anderson as he does a Kenny Anderson showcase. So a quick uh, shout out to Ian Cunningham, but also Pastor uh, Lou. He came on and just shared and you attend his church. And you are now in Brooklyn because you are a professor at Brooklyn College. First of all, how is this semester going for you as an educator? It's going well so far. Uh, we had a little hiccup in the beginning. We have switched over to all vaccinated students, and it was an in-person class. So now we are remote for this month while students get their vaccines. And then hopefully we'll be in person next week. We'll see. Fingers crossed. <laughs> now, how long have you been at Brooklyn? I've been at Brooklyn College since 2008 when I graduated from uh, my PhD program at the CUNY Grad Center. So what is your role at Brooklyn College? I'm a professor of sociology. I teach race and ethnicity, qualitative research methods, um, and social theory. Well, and so off air, I said I was excited about this interview, very fascinating, intriguing, and especially with the events that have taken place over the last two years primarily to this topic of the social injustice and unrest and riots and just polarization of people. How have you been able to teach with all these hands-on things of current events taking place? Has it been easier or more difficult for you? Um, I would say it's a little more challenging personally because there is so much unrest right now in the world. Uh, so it's a little hard to... Um, to engage in teaching while worrying about what else is going on, um, mm. especially with what's going on right now at the borders. Um, but it also lends itself to examples when I'm teaching about capitalism, when I teach about immigration, when I teach about race and ethnicity. Uh, it provides examples, concrete examples that the students understand because they're happening in real time. Tamara, where did you grow up? I grew up in Guelph, Ontario in Canada. And is that your background? Uh, my background is Trinidadian. Both my parents are Trinidadian immigrants to Canada, and I was born and raised in Canada. So that probably puts an odd spin or a great spin on the whole conversation regarding immigration without getting too political, I guess. What are your thoughts based on your parents and your personal history? Um, well, I'm an immigrant too here to the States, right? Right, um, right. So, you know, it always surprises me that we don't have policies in place yet for refugees, for immigrants who want to come and do seasonal work or who want to come and do permanent work um, or who are just fleeing uh, conditions that are in their homeland. Uh, so I'm always surprised that we haven't come up with a solution to this when we know there are various solutions that sociologists themselves have come up with right. that the government can implement. So I really wish that there were more 
sociologists on these boards that make these types of decisions or policymakers that are sociologists so that we can implement some protocols so that we're not left with thousands of people at borders waiting to be processed. And remember, these are legal borders that they right, are right, right. waiting at. So, you know, uh, we need to have better protocols and a smoother transition for those who want to gain employment and who want a better life for themselves and their families. And tomorrow, Mo's making some time, and you can find the website right there, tomorrowmo's.com. I know that here in Vermont, the conversation is having 100 uh, Afghani uh, refugees enter our state. And it's been f funny, maybe, interesting, sad, where some people are so concerned about these 100 people, 100, that need a place to be safe, to grow, to be nurtured. And especially, as you know, and those uh, probably are familiar, um, full-time, I'm a pastor. And I'm like, what better place to be than ministering to those that are refugees, that need love and care? Uh, first question, or second question, third question, whatever we're at now, is uh, your title, sociologist. Like, what, what is the definition of being a sociologist? <laughs> well, a sociologist is someone who studies the social science of society, right? So we're looking at society, how people interact in society, how institutions are uh, placed and interacting with those who use them. Uh, so it's the study of, of everything that we have in society, religion, politics, anything you could think of. Why do you think people aren't as educated or learned about such topics? Why do we think just our opinion or our personal experience is enough to interact with others? Well, it's never enough, but I think we think it's enough because we have so much access to information. So there is um, this sense that we have a lot of information and access and therefore we know a lot when in fact we need to look at the rigor of what is being uh, spewed out in social media or in other news outlets. Uh, we need to read more. <laughs> we need to read the right types of material and vet things more than we do right now. So I, I just feel like we have a lot of misinformation out there in the world. And so we don't have the real knowledge that we would require in order to see change or to see improvement in how people interact with one another. And again, Tamara Mose on Twitter, it's at Tamara Mose. And you mentioned going back a little bit, living in Guelph, Ontario. I actually lived in Brockville, Ontario for a bit. And we had friends in Toronto. So we made that little trek there. Mm -hmm. But as there is access to information, I noticed that you worked with the Toronto Raptors. Could you just share that, that story for us? Sure. So in 1995, we had the NBA draft for the first time in Toronto, Ontario. And we had this new team, the Toronto Raptors, <laughs> uh, about a year prior to that, or at least several months prior to that, I had applied for a job. I figured they would need somebody to help with some on-court entertainment, specifically dancers. I applied, I got the position, and from there I became the first choreographer and coordinator for the Raptors Dance Pack, that was our name, uh, from 1995 to 2000. So I'll have to give a quick story, not that you care or the listeners care, but I just like to talk. And so I get to see the Raptors play, I forget who it was, in an exhibition game, Harbor Station, St. John, New Brunswick. And they had uh, Jerry Stackhouse, I'm a big Carolina fan, uh, on the team. And I believe Damon Stoudemire, who was an absolute uh, star for them. And my friend said, hey, I was 19 at the time. He said, 
dress up, look like you know what you're doing. And so being a freshman or sophomore in college, whatever it was, I walked straight down, sat center row, and I actually gave some seats or space. And I was uh, seven seats down from the owner of the Raptors. And I enjoyed that uh, that game courtside, which um, I've never had the opportunity to do again because they <laughs> call my bluff and they ask for credentials. But being the first year of the Raptors, uh, everybody uh, was a little bit fluid with uh, that fan support. But for you, with the Raptors, a professional organization, professional sports, did that prepare you? in understanding the haves and have-nots, the the demographics that you saw, whether attending the game or even players participating, did that kind of lead towards what you're doing now? I wouldn't necessarily say that it led to where I am now, um, but I can see now in hindsight how the dynamics were intriguing to me at that time and have stayed with me until now especially um, seeing the racial breakdown of who's on court, who's behind the people organizing who's on court. Uh, even if you just look at the breakdown of the dance pack themselves, the fight I had to make it a very diverse team because I wanted it to represent what Toronto represented mm. to me at that time, which was diversity. Wow. So um, just seeing who is pulling the strings versus who is performing uh, for those people and for the fans we could see a difference in um, racial composition, but you could also see differences in class composition. You see the same thing with ticket holders, right? Who gets to sit court seat side, as yeah. you said, you haven't had a chance to do that again. <laughs> There's a reason for that, <laughs> um, much more expensive. And then those who could afford what we call the 500 level, the top level um, where we would have discounted tickets. So you would see a lot of black and brown folks up there, a lot of students up there, and then you would see uh, more middle class, upper middle class um, and wealthy, frankly, overclassed uh, yeah, yeah. in the bottom in the bottom uh, part of the, the arena. So yeah, you definitely saw inequality play out. I don't think it was something that necessarily connected for me to sociology at that time, but now as a sociologist, I can see those links. So Tamara, you said that you're new to Instagram and there's been some recent research that's coming out in the news about Instagram and just the thoughts of body shaming and uh, how especially young girls, but everyone just starts to compare themselves to somebody that's run a picture through multiple filters, taken several times to get just the perfect look they, they want. And I know this is only a part of your research, but can you just share about being new to Instagram? Have you seen that? What have you been able to uh, document maybe from the research that you have to now personally experienced? Yeah, so joining Instagram has been interesting and I actually almost wrote a post about it yesterday and I said, you know what, let's let's hold off on that. Uh, <laughs> but um, we're, we're in this kind of see me stage of um, society where we want to chronicle everything that we're doing, what we're eating, where, where we're headed to, what activities are we participating in, who do we hang out with, um, what does my makeup look like? <laughs> so it's been a fascinating trip to see the difference between Facebook, which for me seemed more wholesome, I guess, <laughs> sure, sure. or family oriented, I don't know. Um, but Instagram seems to be more about uh, a curation of um, imagery. So everybody's curating their, their image in a very particular way using these filters, um, dressing provocatively. I noticed that a lot more on Instagram. 
Um, so there's this, this see me culture that we're looking at and, um, and it's a little frightening because I can't imagine young folks. I mean, my daughter's on Instagram. She posts mostly sports, political, um, nature type posts. And so I'm glad for that. <laughs> um, but the thing is, I can imagine being a young girl or boy and um, or, or somebody who's gender nonspecific and seeing these images or seeing certain types of posts and um, wondering how they fit in because it seems like everybody's having a great time because no one's going to be posting about them crying <laughs> or upset. <laughs> They're posting all the good stuff. So I can only imagine what that does to uh, people's perception of their bodies, people's perception of what life should be like. Um, so it's a little daunting to see to see what what people are engaged with and also just the um, the addictive nature of social media. So if you're constantly looking at these images, how does that play a role yeah. in your mind? And we already know that the effects are, are dire. And the uh, notifications of the dings and the pings. And uh, my wife is absolutely notifications. <laughs> that is probably. It's probably wise to shut those off. My wife, and she's the best, and she she's only critical because she said, Jeff, it would only take two more seconds for you to get the horizon perfect in the picture instead of crooked. And I'm like, hey, I meant it, I meant it that way, but I'm just too lazy. But for for my children and my son's 19 and daughter's 17, it's been difficult for them to uh, see followers leave because of posts they make or because they start to compare where you are versus the uh, the other person's vacation. As you mentioned, you have a daughter, but you have three children. Have you been able to navigate with them healthy dialogue on what is appropriate versus uh, you can find a healthy rhythm in posting or using social media? Absolutely. So my younger one is eight and he's not on social media, um, doesn't really know anything about social media. So that's good. Um, the two older ones, my son is 16. He doesn't really use social media in that way. He's a gamer. So he uses Discord and, and he talks to his friends on Discord, but he's not a he doesn't post anything. He has an Instagram account, but I think just to look at other people's um, posts and so on. And it's mostly gaming stuff. Um, my daughter, yes, we did have a long conversation with her about how things are portrayed. It's not reality. Uh, also, what is acceptable for her to post about? Yeah, and just yeah. a, a general sense that anything you put on the internet can be seen by anybody at any time. So, mm. you know, keeping that frame of mind as you post or as you make any kind of political comment, um, or even if you just want to get into it in your comment section with somebody about something political, you know, we want to make sure that she understands anybody could see it at any time. So be be prepared for that. And screenshots and to be aware of screenshots. I know for myself, I am so glad that I didn't have social media. I didn't post anything like uh, inappropriate. I was just stupid. And I would have posted those stupid things that I did that uh, didn't really have safety or was not safety approved. Uh, Tamara Mose, make us up time. I want to bring up your website as well as you've written and done multiple things. Can you just talk, first of all, about did writing come naturally for you? Is that something you always wanted to do or did you have to work at it? I definitely had to work at it. I did always write though. I used to always write poetry or I would write, write in a journal, um, my thoughts, you know, I kept a diary as a teenager. 
So I always wrote my thoughts down, um, but to write academically and to write about other people in a concrete and systematic way, I definitely had to learn how to do that. And that's something I learned going to university and more so during my grad school years, learning how to systematically write and then also implement research in the writing and uh, be able to convey that to a large audience, not just an academic audience. My whole goal is always to write for a general audience um, so that it's more widespread so we can actually get word out and people can actually understand what you're writing. What type of impact or influence did your parents have on what you're doing now or just have on you growing up? Um, they had a lot of influence. Uh, my dad is a retired professor of Spanish. Uh, he went to the University of Guelph to teach. So um, I always saw that lifestyle. My mother also worked at the University of Guelph in the library as a library associate. So I always had this sense that education was important. I always had a sense that uh, reading was important, learning was important. And so all of those things have translated into what I do now uh, has given me an appreciation for education and how it can open up your world and your worldview. Now, what would you say to a student that is more of a hands-on learner that they might enjoy your class, take your class, but it doesn't connect? How can you connect what you teach in a classroom with on that stereotyped uh, hands-on learner? Yeah, it's it's challenging for hands-on learners, you know. Um, but what I try to do is give them relevant examples that are in their everyday life, and then also because I teach ethnography, which is great for people who are hands-on. <laughs> um, qualitative research in general is really fun for those folks because you can get out there into a field site and actually observe people. So you're you're physically in a site that you're studying, you're physically looking at people, you're writing notes about these people, how they look, how they behave, what are their actions, how do they interact with other people around them, um, how they navigate certain spaces, public and private. So um, I love teaching that particular course because you can actually go out there and, and do something physical and see something concrete and take notes based on that. You also get to interview people. So again, this is something that is active, something they can do in front of another person. Uh, so they tend to gravitate to those types of exercises a lot. And I try to implement that in all of my classes, not just the qualitative research methods or ethnography. I try to implement it in everything where you physically have to go and do something um, to collect data. That's really good. As we look back, or I should say, as you look back, because you will know what you're looking for, but as uh, you look back in 10 or 15 years from now, how do you think the pandemic will have reshaped uh, sociology as a whole or primarily in the Northeast? That's a really interesting question. Not something I've ever thought about, to be mm. honest. Okay. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure how it's going to change things. Um, I would like to think that the pandemic has made people a little more empathetic. Um, I'm not seeing that much evidence of that, right. but in some right. areas I have seen that kind of evidence. I think it has pushed us in, in a way that we weren't expecting, where we're trying to now have a little more self-care we started to realize that, wow, maybe we don't all have to physically go into an office structure right. to work, right? Which benefits those who have disabilities or those who just cannot physically make it to an office or who don't 
want to commute that long. Uh, mm -hmm. Notice that we can work from home, that we can make adjustments. Uh, for companies, they realized they could save a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so capitalism might change slightly based on that fact. And it affects everything, right? It permeates into construction, it permeates into economics and how that all unfolds. What the long-term effects of that are, I have no idea. Um, I think right now, a lot of people are struggling socially because of the pandemic. We were so isolated for so long. Um, we also started to see people and other things in a different light. So I think that was uh, a little daunting for folks. And I would be interested to see how that changes in the next 10 years. I really can't predict. Uh, but if somebody does some modeling, I'm sure we could, uh, like some statistical modeling, I'm sure we could see where things go. But I think there will be a lot of adjustments. And I just am reminded that we just celebrated 20 years of, well, I don't know if we celebrated, but remembered from 9-11 and how that brought the country together. And I don't know what we were arguing about before 9-11 happened. And I was maybe too young or was too immature to really focus on the big picture of what was taking place. But I do wonder if this pandemic, if it could be seen as a place where we could refocus on one another instead of being polarized and digging in our feet to our way or our opinion, that perhaps this pandemic could be a time where it not just unites our country, but unites us as people just to say that we need to be for one another. And uh, what are your thoughts on this thought that we are polarized, that in an effort to... Um, to bring a country together, we feel like we need to make our opinion known. Is that what you've been seeing or is that just kind of what's going on and rattling around in my head? <laughs> no, I mean, I think we, we live in a country that has often promoted individualism and meritocracy. Um, I think we understand now that those things don't necessarily work in all cases and that we really need each other. We need to care for one another. We need to let the spirit live in all of us so that we can connect with each other on a deeper level. Um, again, having that empathy towards one another so that we can build community and not tear down community. When we start thinking individually or individualistically, that's when we start to notice a breakdown in how society functions. We start to notice that um, people aren't using their resources for one another. So I think it's important for us to get back to that, that idea of empathy and um, try to unite each other, as, uh, unite with each other as much as we possibly can. I think that's the only way forward. Now, I certainly have a bent or a slant, and I don't want to um, persuade you in any way, not that I would, but I think faith plays an incredible part. Uh, what have you seen statistically, factually, that faith plays into the role of, of people in, in sociology as a whole? In sociology as a whole? Um, it, it's interesting because a lot of sociologists um, steer away from the talk of religion um, mm -hmm. because we see it as a social institution when it comes to sociology. We right, see right a lot of destruction that happened at the hands of quote unquote religion yeah. uh, or people who were touting something as a religious right. And so we see a lot of the, the 
the deviance, I guess, that that was associated or is associated with religion as an institution. Um, so, so that's always a struggle uh, when you're teaching, especially if I'm teaching Marxism. Yes, <laughs> so, yeah. You know, it is a, it is a struggle or the Protestant ethic, the spirit of capitalism and so right, on. Right. Um, but, but at the end of the day, in sociology, there is a whole a whole arm of um, religious studies that is that is explored how it builds community, um, how religion can bring one another together, even in the form of rituals. Right, a lot of right, right. religions have rituals, and there's something that's very comforting about those rituals. Right, so when you hear the the petty discourse about you know this religion has this ritual this one has this other ritual at the end of the day when you look at it it's bringing comfort to a group of people because we do see so much in the world right and yeah. so we look for these places of refuge and the church is one of those places um having a social group that believes in the same things that you believe in that's a refuge for people i think we saw that in the pandemic um it, we saw outcomes from that in different ways. A lot of churches closed down. Um, a lot of people started questioning their faith. Uh, some people strengthened their faith because they saw this as um, maybe a shakeup in their society or in their communities sure. uh, to really to really um, determine how strong their faith was. So, I mean, we, we see these divisions, which for the most part are artificial. <laughs> we, see, right, right. we see a lot of rhetoric around what religion is, could be, should be. Um, but I think if we thought of, thought of it more as a communal gathering um, of, of faith, I think we would see people coming together in a different manner. I think a lot of times we are fighting each other for the wrong reasons, or we will uh, dismantle what somebody else believes for the wrong reasons, when really what we should be doing is having discourse among each other. Right. Let's learn about each other. Let's learn to see where, where are the similarities. And if there are differences, are the differences that grand that we can't come together at some other point in the discourse, right? So I, I just think religion permeates everything that we're seeing in the pandemic. I think it's permeated uh, a lot of what I see in sociology in terms of how we study so society, um, how we study communities. So I just think it's fascinating. I think it's something that we should spend more time really thinking about. Certainly, and uh, Tamara Mose, you can find her uh, here's the website, uh, tamaramose.com. Also, she's a professor, full-time professor at Brooklyn College. When you say full-time professor, uh, is that because there's not a lot of full-time professors or did that oh, just... No, it's not full-time professor. It's a full professor. So <laughs> there's assistant, associated, uh, associate, and full. So <laughs> I'm not that uh, wrong. <laughs> then there's distinguished, which you usually get when you're a little older if you've crafted some amazing book that uh, millions of people want to read. <laughs> Well, you could tell you could tell that I never went to graduate school, so I, I don't know such things. But uh, for you, the importance of not just education, but pursuing higher education and deepening that understanding and knowledge. Was that something you ever felt pressure from parents uh, to accomplish or just knowing that your dad was a professor? Or is that something that you always wanted and had that desire for more knowledge, for more wisdom? 
Um, I've always wanted more knowledge, uh, regardless of what industry I was in. Um, I never felt pressure from my parents necessarily. I mean, the model was there in front of me. Mm -hmm. um, but no, they, they allowed me to have this full career in dance from a very young age as a teenager. Um, they would drive me to Toronto to take lessons on the weekends and so on. And then I would drive myself once I turned 16. So I, I always had support for being creative, um, being a hands-on learner, if you will. Um, and so I never felt that kind of pressure. I do feel that dance has translated nicely into teaching. And I always tell this to everybody that, you know, I'm just performing different material in front of a different audience. Mm -hmm. It's still a performance of some sort. You know, after I teach, I get the same rush that I got when I would come off the yeah, court. Yeah. And be like, yes, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. they got the point that I was trying to make. Mm -hmm. And it's the same feeling and the same, the same kind of rush um, that I would get after a great performance. So you know, uh, I'm I'm happy that I had parents that were supportive in that way that allowed me to uh, explore the creative side of me. And that also supported me in the academic side. So tomorrow you just made a comment and you said that the model was always in front of you, speaking of your parents. Mm -hmm. And I just think that is tweetable. So I'll try to remember it and tweet it out after. But the model was always in front of you. For some people, whether the model is not in front of them or they're choosing not to learn from that model because they can choose whatever they want, how important is it that we are positive models for people that choose to follow us like you chose to follow that of your parents? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I think if we get to a place where we're always wanting to learn, then you will find those models no matter where you go. So doesn't mean that you have to have two parents at home doesn't mean that you have to have parents who are highly educated um, it could be people in your community it could be people in your church community it could be people um, that you just encounter out when you're out at the, an event I think the bottom line is if you see good in people if you see um, people who are striving in a way that makes them happy and, and joyous <laughs> I think that we need to be able to again have this empathy. I, I can't I can't strike that chord enough, but yeah, having, yeah. having this empathy where you feel what somebody else is feeling, I think allows us to accept knowledge from anybody who's around us. So you don't necessarily have to have a model in your household, but you look for things in different people that you see bring them joy. And if you want that same joy, then you ask them questions, right? So I think coming out of people's shells, asking questions, understanding maybe how somebody got to this place and um, emulating that in some regard or asking for help and networking. Um, there's a variety of ways in which we can use a model and it doesn't necessarily need to be a model in our home. I think that's really wise. Very good. Well stated. And uh, we'll get you out in a little bit. Uh, Tamara Mose, tomorrowmose.com. On Instagram, it's tomorrowmose.3, tomorrowmose.3. And on Twitter, it's just at tomorrowmose. And uh, thank you again for making the time. And when you think about this year in teaching, were you afraid that you would have to go back online this entire year? Or was that something you learned to appreciate from uh, last year teaching? 
So last year I wasn't teaching. I took a job with the American Sociological Association as director of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I kind of I kind of skirted out of having to do remote. <laughs> I only had to do remote for a couple months when it, when we first quarantined. Um, but by then I had already met my students in person, so it didn't feel like a crazy transition for me. Um, last year I didn't teach at all. Two days before I had to teach this fall, I found out that I was going to be remote because the students had to get their vaccines. And that threw me off. Um, was I comfortable with it? Absolutely not. <laughs> I have no desire to be on a computer all the time. I am getting used to it now, being in my fifth week of teaching. So that's that's a good thing, I guess. Except now we're going to go back in person, I, I'm told. Right. So um, I prefer being in person. I prefer interacting with people in real time and seeing faces instead of lecturing to a bunch of names because we're not required to have our students turn on their cameras. Right. So it's different lecturing to names, really, that are typed yeah. on a screen right. uh, instead of faces. I'm a, I'm a interactive person. I like to move people around. I like people to meet other people. Um, I'm a very social person that way. So teaching in person is my preference. I don't think I will ever get used to teaching remotely forever, but I'm I'm fine with it right now because it's required of me. <laughs> so I uh, guess a serious question and uh, two fun ones. And that's simply, uh, as a pastor, I was told that we need to reflect the community in which we are. Yeah. I was also told that we need to be diverse, and uh, I was adopted from South Korea, grew up right here in Vermont, so I'm more Vermonter than I am anything. Mm -hmm. But a pastor was strongly urging me to reach out to the refugees in our state, but they're 40, 50 minutes away. And I'm like, we certainly want to be welcoming for anyone if they need help with transportation, certainly. But we have Vermont rednecks, we have flatlanders, we have those that are middle class, blue collar, white collar, that live right here in our town. And so I'm thinking that we can start with those at inner town and branch out and, of course, be accepting of anyone that comes from outside of 30 miles, whatever the case might be. Mm -hmm. How important is it that we look for diversity versus or maybe not versus but while we accept the diversity that looks different right within our own you know square inch yeah i think we need to take into consideration all types of diversity our reach needs to be wide we have to cast that net wider um yes are there people in our immediate presence who need to be ministered to who need to be taken in um who need who need to uh even just have a voice, absolutely. And I think uh, a lot of churches, um, such as uh, pastors such as yourself or Pastor Louis Straker, I, they do so much in their communities, you know, um, and and they are reaching the immediate population as much as they can, um, given the bandwidth. But I do think we need to also cast a wider net and uh, try to reach out for diversity um, purposes to the bigger communities or actually yeah. plant people in these different communities so that we have some outreach. Um, it's hard to do it all though, right? It's hard to do it all. I think it's hard to um, address every issue that we have socially, but 
because of that, I think we can't be isolated. I think we need to connect with other institutions. We need to connect with other churches. We need to connect with other nonprofit organizations so that we can cast that wider net. I don't think any one church or any one pastor can do it all. I don't think any one ministry can do it all. I think we need to um, we need to just partner with more people. I see that again with with Pastor Louis Straker. He he partners with different churches. He partners with different organizations to make sure that we can be part of a lot of different things that are going on in the community and have that outreach and be able to minister to different people. So I think that's what we need to do is we need to stay connected. At the end of the day, that's what it's all about. It's about connecting socially and then casting that wider net. Very well said. And I did not give you that question before, but that's what we're trying to teach here with our people just to, well, if we want to be like Jesus, we need to love like Jesus. And that's whoever and wherever he sends us. And uh, tomorrow most, thank you so much. Um, so a couple questions to get you out on. Okay. If or when, let me say when in your case, the feature film is made about your life, who <laughs> plays who plays you in that feature film? <laughs> That's a great question. Wow. I stole it from Hernando Planos. He's a uh, basketball coach, has a Be Contagious podcast. So I got to <laughs> give a shout out to him. But uh, oh my gosh, I have never even thought of such a thing. Well, <laughs> while, while you think of that, I will ask the second question, then you can answer backwards. So if it's made into a fictional movie, a fictional movie, do you want to play the hero or the villain? The hero, always. Always the hero. I, I want to play the villain, but the villain that everybody likes, maybe like Captain Jack Sparrow. So <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, no, definitely want to be the hero. I can be a little villainous maybe in the beginning, <laughs> but <laughs> the outcome of it has to be hero. <laughs> I don't think I don't think heroes learn unless they are uh, caught up in some kind of controversy or challenge. So yes. I don't know. I feel like villainous maybe in the beginning, but it has to end up the hero. Um, well said. And have you thought of someone to play you in that feature film? <laughs> Say that again. Have cool. you thought of someone to play you in that feature film about your life? Uh, I mean, no, I don't really know. I mean, people have said in the past that I have a likeness to Alicia Keys. So I don't know if she buffs up her acting skills, maybe Alicia Keys. <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. Tamara, thank you so much for making the time. It's been a pleasure. And I know I've learned a lot and I've been uh, encouraged by your words and what you're doing and just regarding the importance of um, of loving people well. And sometimes it means getting in an uncomfortable position so we can show empathy. Frankly, there's no better place to be when we're serving one another. But um, thank you for sharing your words today. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. And again, Tamara Mose, you can find her at tamaramose.com. She's a professor at Brooklyn College and uh, on Instagram and Twitter as well. You are listening to uh, my podcast, the Backfire Podcast with Jeff Fuller of J. Fuller Interviews. J. Fuller Interviews on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We are shamelessly promoted everywhere. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you later.